Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm Francis Seeley from GlobalNet21 and this is a podcast of a meeting we held in Conway Hall in London where we looked at how we can address climate change. I think almost everyone is now agreed that climate change is happening and that it's made by human activity. The problem is how do we deal with it? And at this meeting we had four speakers We haven't recorded the discussion, but we thought the speeches were really important because they look at different avenues of addressing the problem. They're not the only ways, but they were good ways to try to get people to think around the subject so we could take this further at other meetings and webinars and podcasts in the future. So I hope you will listen to this. The first speaker was Charles Appleby, who's founded an organisation called No CO2. And his view is that we can all make a difference by changes in our lifestyle and the things that we do in our local communities. So let's listen to Charles now. Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Charles Appleby and my talk today is Choose how individual action can stop global warming. So I'm the founder of NoCO2.org, that's N0CO2.org. We plant trees, and if you plant enough trees, then you go carbon neutral. So let me start by sharing with you how I got into uh, global warming. It was through air travel. So my, uh, my wife comes from Singapore. We started to make flights from the UK to Singapore and back. And I started to get an awareness of really just how much CO2 emissions we were creating by this. And that led me on a voyage of discovery to discover that um, basically on average we're creating around 7 tonnes of of CO2 emissions each and uh, the impact of of that. So I set up no CO2 to basically make it easy for people to do something about it, to donate money online and get thousands of trees planted in the Far East. Okay, So, um, it would be good to find out a little bit about yourselves, if I may. So obviously, everyone here is going to be concerned about climate change. But let me ask you the question, please. Basically, how many people here are very concerned about climate change? Just take a show of hands. Okay, so is that... 90%? 90%? 90%? 90%? Okay, thanks Francis. Okay, we'll go 90% of Okay, so the second question then is, who feels that they're doing something about it? Right, so let's take a show of hands on that. Who's, who feels they're doing something about it? So, is that the same or a little bit less? 80% Francis, yeah? 80%, okay, right. So, now, a little bit more specific. So. Who feels they've reduced or removed their CO2 emissions by 20% or more? So 20% or more. So hands up for that. Just, just in the, in the year, generally, compared to the average seven tons. So who's removed? So who's reduced or removed their CO2 emissions by 20% or more? Okay. So show of hands on this. Wow. So that's about any more? 10%. 10% Francis, yeah? Let's take, sorry, let's take that one again. So, Could you elaborate 
quotes. Uh, when you say um, CO2 emissions, I was actually thinking across the board of how much water I use and how much food I consume. Um, but no, no, just keep it simple. It's just a simple thing. So it sounds to me like about 10%. Okay, so how many people have reduced or removed their CO2 emissions by 50% or more? Anybody? 50%? Okay, zero. Okay, thanks so much, guys. So let me share my starting point with you. So my starting point is that basically the world is on track for three degrees of global warming, which means catastrophic climate change. Sadly, progress to reduce uh, CO2 emissions is very, proceeding very slowly. And um, the bottom line is that there's far too much talk about global warming and not enough action to get on with it. Okay, so let's take a look at what's actually new. So what's new, we've got what individuals are doing. So we've got people like David Attenborough and Greta Thunberg making a real difference. And interestingly, I met someone on Friday who specifically got involved in uh, climate change activism because they watched one of the Greta Thunberg videos from Davos earlier this year. So what's really important, and I guess maybe many of you will know this, that as a result of the UN Climate Summit in September, there are now 77 countries who've made some sort of commitment to uh, going net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, and this includes the UK. What's also really important is the uh, commitment to um, the, 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 the climate and environmental emergency which has been made. So this has been made by the UK Parliament, by many local authorities across the UK, and by cities internationally. So the point about this is that this really creates the opportunity to, to talk to people about this and to invite them and encourage them to do something about it. Also, I know we can reduce CO2 emissions by 50% by 2030. And the reason I know this is because I worked out the spreadsheet myself. I know how we can do this. And this opens the door to basically declaring a new target, which is to have a 25% reduction in CO2 emissions by 2025. Okay? So each of us can make a difference, um, starting from here. So let's take a look at what is the power of individuals like us to stop global warming. And the first point to make is that basically the world is geared up to listen to what people want. So all the marketing, the uh, politicians, everybody's listening to what people want. This is an interactive discussion. So first of all, ourselves as the consumer. This is what we buy, this is what we do. Okay? So in included in that, uh, so, so basically within that, we directly control about 60% of our CO2 emissions by means of purchase. This is what we purchase with electricity, gas, fuel, petrol and diesel for the car, air travel, all this sort of thing. So we're controlling about 60% of this. So personally, um, I answered the question I asked earlier, is that I feel I've reduced my CO2 emissions by about 20%. I've done this by switching electricity to clean, renewable electricity, by turning down essential heating, uh, sometimes much to the irritation of my wife, reducing air travel and switching to a mainly vegetarian diet. Um, but also, I want to put on the table the importance uh, on the environmental side that we stop buying and using pesticides and um, herbicides because of the damage they cause to the environment. 
Secondly is the activist consumer. These are these amazing people who go along to the supermarkets and organisations and say, look, you demand that they reduce their packaging, they improve their recycling, and generally reduce the CO2 emissions that are going to the products that are for sale and which are so easy for us to, to grab off the shelves. Then thirdly is the responsible consumer. So these are the people who have reduced their CO2 emissions and then go on to remove their CO2 emissions, for example, by planting trees. Now, it's really, really easy and it's not expensive, okay? So I've actually removed 100% of my CO2 emissions by planting trees, as you would expect, because I'm the founder of no CO2. So it's, it's really easy to do. So we talked earlier, the UK average is seven tons of CO2 emissions per person per year. Now, it's very simple, if you plant 1,750 trees, then those trees will remove seven tons of CO2 per year, for every year that those trees are growing. It sounds a crazy amount, but actually because they're being planted in the Far East, it's, it's only 187 pounds to plant all those trees. And in addition, for every 100 trees that you plant, it creates a day's work for people who are living in extreme poverty. So it's a fantastic deal, part of the circular economy. So then you've got the protester, and we've seen this year, people came out of the COP24 in Poland very down at the end of December, and because of the amazing initiatives by, by Greta Thunberg, the school strikes and Extinction Rebellion, there's been a massive amount of awareness raised this year specifically about climate change. But sadly, it's the governments who have been very slow to take action and respond and, and do anything about it. Absolutely. Okay. But we don't have to take to the streets. Um, a very valuable contribution is really what you can do is talking to other people. Talking to friends, relatives, contacts, people at work, um, people around you, people in the neighbourhood, neighbours in the community. All these things are valuable to put on the table the issue of climate change and what people can do about it. And it's very clear that the declaration of a climate emergency gives permission to us to talk to people. It gives a reason. That's why we can talk to them, because there's an emergency. And what you do normally do in an emergency is something that we all need to take action on. One minute. One minute? Yeah. Oh, goodness. OK. Right, so let's move on. So people's influences, most of us on social media, uh, it's easy to share on Facebook. So finally, let me talk about what if we choose? What if we choose to stop global warming? So Choose is the brand new initiative which I'm launching today. I want to now acknowledge Landmark Worldwide for helping me to come up with the idea of Choose. And basically what's happening here is that the threat of global warming is all over the news, but people are pretending it still doesn't affect them. People are not yet making that connection between global warming and the impact on their lives and the lives of their children. So it comes down to this, it's time for each of us to choose. So carry on as we are, and we wreck the planet and the future of our children. Or we choose to stop global warming. So again, please, I'm going to ask for a show of hands, okay? So who here wants to choose to stop global warming? Okay, so what have we got, uh, Francis? Hayes. 100%. 100%? No, we've got some. Oh, 100%, 90%, 95%. You're choosing. Okay, we're inviting you. Who wants to choose to stop global warming? Okay. Okay. 
we'll have to start fairly soon, shall we? Okay, so let's make it happen. So what choose is all about. First, you choose yourself to stop global warming. Then you share on Facebook, whatever, to inspire other people. And then you take action yourself. So basically, it's about us all making it happen. There's no one going to come and save us from this one. It's, a, it's up to what we do ourselves and how we take action working with others. Okay, so I've, there's a note on the, uh, on the chairs, the website. So the website, you can't yet fully log in and register on this, but you can see the website and you'll be able to register in a couple of days. So I look forward to your questions on this. Um, look forward to uh, speaking to you later, and thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Okay, The second speaker was Camilla Behrens, and Camilla runs a project in South London where she involves the community in the generation of community energy. And she does this through a community interest company, a sort of cooperative that involves local people. And it tackles not only alternative energy as a source of energy, but it also combines that with an approach to fuel poverty. So let's listen to what Camilla has to say now. which has just come out, it's an Australian film uh, and it's a documentary but it's a really fantastically uh, exciting and colourful documentary uh, and it's the director Damien Gamo and he's talking to his four-year-old daughter and he's saying look just please don't be too frightened by all the things you're hearing about climate change I'm going to show you what's really happening out there and he travels around the world and he goes to visit all these communities that are actually building the future, a really positive, fairer, more sustainable future right here, right now. All the examples he uses are real life, except for um, one of his daughter's friends who's asked to look at the future and uh, the friend wants to have a future with rocket boots in it. Um, so he includes the rocket boots in the story, but all the other stories uh, are based on, on, on real life uh, case studies. Uh, and one of the studies that really resonated for me was uh, a village in India where they have come together and they've bought some small solar panels and they've stuck the solar panels on their roofs. But not only that, but they've wired all the panels together so that they can share their surplus energy with people who can't afford to buy their own panels. And this to me is a real uh, symbol of our times. It's showing that we can re-democratise energy through renewables. We can take it back, we can make it, we can own it, and we can govern it. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, host a local premiere for 2014 Catford a couple of weeks ago, and Damon was there. Uh, and in the Q&A afterwards, I had to butt in and just um, start off by saying that a lot of the stories we saw in the film were from around the world, and they can seem a bit distant. But a lot of the things that he's talking about are happening right here in the UK, right now, and a lot of them on our own doorsteps. And I'm sure you all know in your own communities the activities that are going on to bring communities together to address, uh, address climate change in lots of different ways. Um, over in South East London, where I live, uh, th th there's an example of this, a similar kind of idea to what hap is happening in the, in the India model. Um, I got together with some local people, a dozen local people, five years ago 
we were all very concerned about climate change and we wanted to see more renewable energy in our backyard in, in South East London. Uh, and we got together and uh, in the last four years we've managed to raise £360,000 and we've installed free solar panels on seven local primary schools. Now, it's a bit of a miracle, I, I still have to kind of blink and pinch myself when I say that, but the model we've used is something called a community share offer. And that was a, an idea that was uh, introduced by Ed Miliband about 15 years ago. Uh, and the idea basically is, um, it's a win-win situation for everyone. So we ask our community, or, or anyone who's interested, to put some money in the fundraising pot. And as a thank you to them, we give uh, a dividend of about 3 or 4% each year. And then they have the opportunity to actually remove that investment after a three-year period, between a three and 20-year period of the project. And the, the way we can do that is that uh, up until very recently, the government was providing subsidies for solar energy. So just for, for generating solar energy, and also for putting our surplus back onto the grid, we got a little bit of a thank you payment from the government. And that gave us a little bit of a surplus, and that allowed us to thank the, the investors that helped us raise the money. And essentially, that just accelerates the whole process. So we, we managed to raise 360000 over two share offers. So that was a month each. So in two months, we raised a six-figure sum. And we were installing within you know, two months later. So this is a real people-powered initiative. And it's not just us. Um, uh, there, there are about 200 other community groups around the country that have been doing very similar things over the last five or six years. And what's really great about most of them is that they're not for profit like us. And they put any kind of surplus that they generate back into the community. So at CELSI, which is South East London Community Energy, my, my cooperative, um, we did a community consultation uh, when we started off. And we realised that there's a lot of concern about fuel poverty in our area. A lot of people were really being forced to choose between heating their homes and eating. And that, we felt, was absolutely scandalous in the 21st century, let alone in a capital city like London. So we started to put together some pop-up energy advice cafes. We trained ourselves up with a, an NEA qualification, and we rolled out uh, a series of one-to-one -one advice sessions in libraries and community centres and church halls. Um, free advice with a cup of tea and a slice of cake to sort of de-stigmatise um, the whole process, because people were really... Um, you know, it's not a nice thing to talk about energy debt and not being able to pay your bills and stuff. Um, and we've had a fantastic uh, impact. We've probably um, helped about 100 households to avoid fuel poverty. Um, we've given advice to about 2,500 people um, over the last so two or three years. Um, and we've saved them probably about 2.5 million in total uh, in energy savings. So it's a, it's a real kind of virtuous circle for everyone. Um, and it's a model that we think really needs to be rolled out um, nationally and internationally. It's the, it's the way forward in taking back our energy and deciding what we want to do with it and how much we, we're prepared to pay for it. Um, in looking at the bigger picture, you know, the, the big question is, can we really have a 100% renewable energy future? And I can say absolutely unequivocally that it's a big yes and it's a yes right now. Um, what we're going to see in the future is a very different way of doing things. When you look out of your window, it might look the same, but we're going to learn to value our energy and use it much more creatively, more effectively. 
So there are two words I'd like to leave with you. I'm sure you've heard the term decentralized energy. That's something that we're going to be talking about a hell of a lot in the future, I hope. And that's really a system where you don't have huge power plants spewing out energy for the whole nation. We're going to have lots of disparate forms of energy dotted all around the country, from wind to solar, to geothermal, to anaerobic digestion, to wave, to tidal. And we're going to have a much smarter grid that can adapt more flexibly and take on board all these different types of energy and just redistribute them around the country. We're also going to need a super grid connecting us to Europe so we can share our surplus and de deficits with Europe, something that Brexiteers haven't really considered at all uh, in the process of removal. One minute. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so, that, so really what we need is a lot more people power to understand that there are these fantastic solutions out there. Greenpeace has got a climate emergency manifesto that addresses all the climate change issues across the board. I really urge you to read it because it's going to equip you against all the BS, sticking plaster and greenwash solutions that politicians are going to foist on us in the next couple of months, believe you me. Um, so uh, it, it's visioning and courage. That's what we need from our politicians. That's what we're going to have to insist and acceleration. We need to bring all these fantastic initiatives together and push them forward, facilitate them. We've been fighting, we've been fighting all the way at Celsius. It's hard. We need to make it a lot easier and we need to make you all involved as well. So it's, it's uh, thinking about a really positive future. We, we've got a share offer now. I'm going to give you a card. Please consider investing £250 plus. It's a really fantastic initiative. It's really worthwhile for major community projects in our area, and you have a say on how, how they're governed and managed. Um, so it's a future of us, people power, a revolution in mindset, and a future that we want, a fairer, greener future, with rocket boots included. <laughs> And the third speaker was Elaine Graham Lee. Now Elaine takes a very different view. She doesn't believe that change can take place adequately by individual personal changes. She believes we have to change our whole system, which is based upon consumption and based upon continually producing goods and that our society is sort of geared up to that and we must change that. So let's listen what Elaine has to say now. tackle this through individuals making changes in their daily lives. It's based on the assumption that everyone's sort of a free consumer in the market and they have complete power to make individual rational choices and therefore all you have to do is persuade them. And the thing is that's not how it works. We're told that that's how it works. That's what neoliberal ideology wants us to believe. But it's not actually true. Because people are making the lifestyle decisions within a system that can really fundamentally constrain those decisions. So, you know, if we're thinking about food, um, if you are one of these people um, who's choosing between eating and eating, um, if you live in a food desert where the only shops you've got are little uh, convenience stores, you're not going to have a very wide choice in what you eat because you're constrained by availability, constrained by money. If you are renting uh, in the private rental sector, you don't know whether today will be the day you come home, find a message from your landlord saying, I want to sell, get out, you've got a month. You're not going to be able to put solar panels on that roof that you don't own. So again, you're constrained. You don't have the choice to do that, even if you would want to. 
Um, similarly with transport, uh, I was giving a, a talk to uh, Unite members who are uh, lorry drivers uh, about Just Transition the other week. And one of them said that oh, he was really keen to stop using his car, but he worked shifts at a distribution centre that's out of town and he starts at four in the morning. So there isn't really an alternative way that he can get there other than driving. So again, he can't make the decision to abandon his car because he's not making a completely free choice. It's within the system. So the problem with arguing this, that people should be making these choices and that's how we crack climate change, is that it can actually lead to two things. It can lead to people making very small changes, which is within their control, like changing your light bulbs and so on, which is fine, but it's not really going to get the job done on its own. Or it can be very divisive, where some people have the power to make very substantial ch changes in their lives, and they're just kind of lecturing the people who don't, because this is, after all, a class thing. And I can't be the only one who works in an office where all the admins have to be in there at the dot of nine o'clock every day, but the directors can work from home at a moment's notice and swan in when they, when they like. So they have the power to reduce their carbon footprint by not commuting so much. And I kind of don't really want them lecturing me about it, to be honest. So it can be a very um, divisive argument. And I think sometimes there's a perception of the green movement as being very middle class and not really understanding uh, the lives of ordinary working people. And this argument is actually one of the reasons. So you could say to me, aha, well, you know, it's all very well saying, well, it's not going to get the job done. But if everyone made changes in their lifestyle, even if it was just minor changes, then maybe it would change the system. And this is this argument that how you get change as a consumer is by demanding different products. And it's very true that uh, marketing um, tells us that they're listening to what we want and they're just providing the products that we want. But that isn't how capitalism works. It is not demand leading supply, it's supply leading demand. I mean, you can, you can see that with individual products. So do people remember when the first iPads came out and they were described as a solution looking for a problem? Because no one knew they wanted them until we had Apple marketing them. And now everyone's got a tablet or everyone wants a tablet because we've been told that we want them for 10, 15 years. Um, but you know, we didn't know we wanted them until Apple invented it and wanted to make money by selling them to us. Uh, the same is going on with driverless cars. I mean, um, companies like Uber, their, their main cost that they can't reduce is drivers. So they're trying to tell us all the time, you want driverless cars, you want driverless cars. It's not us demanding it, it's them demanding it because they think that'll make, it more make themselves more profitable. You know, this is how capitalism works. So the idea that actually if we just say, well, we want uh, more ecologically friendly products, that capitalism will just supply, us, supply them for us, that's not how this stuff works at all. And we can see this in areas, um, for example, with food. So this is an area that comes up a lot as the idea of these are lifestyle changes that you can make is looking at what you're eating. And to an extent, that's true. But again, we have to understand how the food that we eat is produced within a system, and how actually the way that we eat, and the, you know, the eating patterns that, society, that you have generally across societies, is again, it's not the product of a free choice. This is something that's created actually by food, by food manufacturers. So for example, um, in the um, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, there's a fundamental shift in US diets from eating mostly pork to eating mostly beef. And that was not US consumers waking up in the morning and saying, you know what, I really want a capitalist to invent a hamburger because that's what I want to eat today. <laughs> that was US beef manufacturers deciding, actually, we are going to drive demand away from pork and towards beef because we want more market share. So it, was a, it took, you know, took decades 
in fact, but it was companies deciding that that's what they wanted to do and when they made successful campaigns to drive the uptake of beef in the American diet rather than pork. And, that, and it worked, and that, that, that's what happened. And we know, you know how destructive beef is being for the environment, but that's not because individuals chose to eat beef. It's because beef companies decided that they wanted to encourage individuals to eat beef. So this is how this stuff works. So if we're talking about individual lifestyle changes, we have to understand that lecturing people about the choices that they make as individuals is not actually what's going to, in to influence companies to change their behavior or governments to change their behavior, which is actually where the power lies. So you could say, okay, well, fair enough, but maybe you're just not trying to change enough. So there are plenty of people who will say, well, the thing is, what you have to do is just withdraw yourself from the market completely. Okay, so if you, you know, if you don't actually have power as a consumer, then maybe what you need to do is stop being a consumer. So this, this is sometimes people who argue, well, you need to set up local co-ops for, uh, uh, you know, for food production and so on, so people don't use, need to use the shops as much. And you know, this is not a bad thing to do. It's great. People can get together, get allotments, grow their own food. It's, it's fantastic, good for those people. But it's not necessarily something that's going to work uh, on the large scale. And people sometimes go further. I remember being on the platform once years ago by somebody who argued that the way forward was for, was for no one to have a refrigerator. And he did his whole entire speech on the joys of living refrigerator-free, which uh, I didn't really feel whether it really took caught the mood of the audience. But nevertheless, this is things that people argue. And what this basically comes down to is a theory about how you change the system, which goes all the way back to the 19th century. I mean, um, utopian thinkers in the 19th century basically argued this. And it's saying that what, that what you need to do if you want to change the system is you withdraw yourself from it as much as you can on the basis that if enough people do that, then it will just kind of collapse. So if you don't like how the system works, if, if you stop uh, cooperating with it as much as you can in your daily life, so you stop going to shops and you go to your allotment instead and so on, um, then actually the system will just fall apart. And it's a really, again, it would be a really nice thought if all we had to do to change the system was just to not go shopping. Uh, you know, to do the sort of the no shopping day on the uh, Black Friday or whatever it is. Um, One you know, minute. If, One if, minute. If that would actually change the system, then that would be fantastic. But unfortunately, the fact that people have been trying this for coming up for 200 years now, and the system is still here, kind of gives you the clue that that is actually not going to be the way uh, to change the system. So with my final minute, I think one of the other speakers said something that we don't have to get out on the streets. And I'm afraid I fundamentally disagree. We absolutely have to be out on the streets and see where being out on the streets has got us so far. You know, the attention that's being paid to climate change because we are out on the streets is unprecedented. So we have to do that more. Because it isn't that individuals don't have power. We might not have power when we're standing in the queue at the checkout in Zaynsbridge, but we absolutely have power when we're standing with hundreds and thousands of other people saying we demand a government that will actually deal with climate change. We demand that we will take control of the system and deal with climate change. So don't let anyone tell you that you don't have power. It's just not as a consumer. And the final speaker is Jasper Tomlinson. Jasper believes that we're getting to the stage where we're close to the tipping point. And the only way we can tackle climate change 
is by what used to be called geoengineering, but is now called climate repair. And so Jasper tells us one way that we might do this. So let's listen what Jasper has to say now. Lunchtime news on the radio for the, um, the Met Office was reporting about the 2018 um, figures as being a new record for um, gas, global um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And um, then it came on the evening news as well. Um, that was the um, uh, UN's figures, world, world figures. Um, and, and so, so what's all this to us, to me, to, um, and I've got to save the planet in nine minutes, which is a bit of a challenge. <laughs> and, um, uh, so I'll start very quickly with what, where I'm coming from, because I think it's relevant. I started a very long time ago with a physics degree from Oxford, um, that was 1947 50, and so I had my 90th birthday in July, so I'm ancient. Wise, I hope, but I don't know. And, um, and, and uh, I'll leave that little bit out, it might be better. Um, the reason I've written this out is because I know this is such a short time. So I, I really, so I've never done this before, written out what I'm going to say, but it's only nine minutes that's necessary. But to find me an ill considered career choice in 1954 was to get a job as a tropical surface water hydrologist in the Kenya Colonial Service in 1954. I went back to that topic in the 1970s and was in demand as a freelance consultant, kept quite busy until about 10 years ago. From 2006, my interests and commitments switched to an obsession with cutting-edge nuclear fission reactor technology. So um, basically, I'm, I'm seeking for quite different hymn sheet from most people here, I'm sure. But, um, uh, it's relevant. I think I can say I have now considerable breadth of knowledge in some real advances here in this nuclear stuff, as well as a very comfortable relationship with Maltic Energy, its stable salt reactor, and its team. The liquid fuel stable salt reactor will, in my opinion, and I can sort of bring in evidence about it, um, usher in a new nuclear era. So we've had 60 years of doing nuclear the wrong way. It's time for a big, big change there, and it's coming. It's, it, 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 it like, because um, the, uh, the liquid fuel stable salt reactor for Maltic will in Mavinder, and um, after its first of a kind industrial scale grid connected 300 megawatt electric reactor starts selling electricity in about 2027 20, in New Brunswick State in Canada. So that's actually happening, it's not, a, it's not a project anymore, it's a, it's a reality, it's a, it's a process which we'll get to, um, uh, to a functioning reactor in 2027. <coughs> At the beginning of this year, however, I became acquainted with a dedicated international group of climate repair professionals who were volunteering their abilities to climate repair. This informal expert group <coughs> over the last few years around a very committed German chemical engineer, Franz Erster, who had developed over about a quarter of a century, is a garage actually mainly, um, the aerosol, aerosol concept. The 
concept forms, the concept uh, originated from observation that relatively small amounts of iron salts present in desert dust and dispersed naturally during dry periods uh, millions of years ago, because that's when you're cold, dry, and you've got the dust blowing about. And, um, and, and, uh, and, and, and so, um, and, and that seemed to account for surprisingly stable climates through the Mesozoic. Because the Mesozoic was where we suddenly had all these seen dinosaurs and emerging. The planet had been more or less um, not suitable for life. But during the Mesozoic, it became suitable for life by, by some quite strange things happening, particularly about the stability of the climate. And, um, and so France got this notion of a specific natural climate stabiliser that might be harnessed today as a climate repair tool. Together with a man, René de Richelieu, in, Dr. René de Richelieu in France, and, and a couple of others, France published a 54-page paper, for Christ's sake, and um, Climate Engineering by mimicking, mimicking Natural Dust Climate Control, the Iron Salt Aerosol Method. And it, I can give you the reference to it. Uh, you can, it's on the internet if you know where to look. Application of this aerosol can be expected to deplete methane gas rapidly, increase rainfall washout of black ground carbon particulates, increase cooling from increased marine cloud brightening, because uh, you get something, um, some dicalvite or something from the ocean, with, with the, and, and it goes up and affects the clouds. And, and so, that's a bit of a miracle that happens with this stuff. And um, increase carbon dioxide drawdown by ocean fertilization. So the phytoplankton get more much busier. Increase cooling of ocean brightness when increasing phytoplankton turns it from black blue to turquoise. And um, Sir David King, FRS, heard today on the BBC, one o'clock, he was telling us to be frightened about where our climate is taking us. And that was actually on the midday, yeah, the one o'clock news. Um, and, and, and he could also be quoted as having said, iron salt aerosol looks likely to be critically important for climate repair. Um, once he could contact with this grouping, I asked whether they would, thought it would be, could be useful if I were able to set up a meeting in London for them to set up their store, as it were because they don't have any residents, they're not linked to a university or anything like that, just an informal group. And, um, and they say, yes, please. And the outcome from my long association with the Institute of Mechanical Engineers was that Sir David King, FRS, introduced an Institute of Mechanical Engineering meeting on 11th September in London, that's months ago, um, <coughs> with the title, New Tools for Climate Repair, an introduction for engineers. Um, climate repair is a euphemism. I mean, um, this was taught about geoengineering got very, very um, unpopular. I mean, the idea of messing about with planet. You know. One minute, Jasper. One minute. Um, the planet won't be saved, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Um, uh, the meeting was overbooked. Clear success, and the videographer provided 
uh, created for excellent YouTube videos of proceedings. If anyone wants to follow it up, which I would like to me. The next steps for this initiative are to negotiate with appropriate authorities to embark on some scalable testing of the outcomes to see that it's safe and um, cost effective. Um, uh, now, I wanted to introduce the key to discussing any of this, and that is energy density. And energy density is um, how much space and materials and everything like that it takes to harness energy. And the scale of um, results is huge. Um, uh, people won't like to hear this, but wind turbines, um, the energy density on this scale is um, 0 0.0006. And the um, next one up is um, batteries, which are 0.001. And then you've got wood, hydro, which is 0.72. Hydro is not so squeaky clean as you might imagine because there's a lot of deaths from it. Wood, 5. Petrol, 50. Hydrogen, 143. And nuclear fission, you won't like this, 82 million. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, um, and that's the range. And you can't have an energy policy, a rational energy, energy policy, without nuclear fission. Everyone is ready to LED. <laughs> Real rational approaches has come to the same conclusion. David Mackay, unfortunately, did, and, and everyone. And, and, um, and so uh, that's where you have to be aware. Yeah. <laughs>